This week on the In-Depth Podcast, we're letting loose in Las Vegas with Dan Bilzerian. After sitting down with the high-stakes poker player in 2017, we decided to return to Sin City for more of the Thrill Seekers' crazy adventures. And you might want to get comfortable with the bleep button. Bilzerian, a rough-and-tumble, unapologetic businessman, combined with his colorful vocabulary, is a recipe for a masterclass in censoring. Thank you, editors. This episode has it all. Sex, drugs, tiger sharks, and billion-dollar deals. Plus, the entrepreneur discusses plans for his lifestyle brand, Ignite. I'm running Super Bowl ads for free. You know, like, I mean, my Ignite's got better engagement than Nike does. And battling negative public perception. It's tough, man. I've, like, I've had people talk about me for so many things that I wasn't like guilty of. But we begin with a defining moment in Bilzerian's childhood when his father, a corporate takeover specialist, gave his son some unfortunate news. I want to take you back to when you were a kid growing up to start. You were bullied as a kid. You didn't have many friends growing up. Well, I was just like bouncing around, you know, um, changing a lot of schools and um, dad went to jail. It was kind of like, you know, all these things, so. Kind of sucked. And then, like, right when I was getting popular, I was going to have a good year, I got thrown in jail. So it was... So let's start with the dad, what happened when he told you he's going to prison. He's riding in the car, and uh, he never really goes with us to school. And I was wondering, like, what was going on, if we're going to Disneyland or, like, something, because occasionally he'd pull us out of school to do cool shit. And, um, yeah, we, uh, we pulled into the school, and he kind of, like, spit it out. You know, boys, I'm going to jail. And it was... It was more traumatic because for like a year or two, everybody was like, oh, your dad's going to jail. And my dad was always telling me like, there's no chance I'm going to jail. He's like this eternal optimist. I think the hardest part of it was knowing that I had to go into school and like face all the kids after, you know, a year of saying that he's not going to jail and then being wrong and looking like an idiot. Which if that's not already devastating enough for a kid to just find out his dad's going to prison. Well, I would have expected them at least give me the they off school, you know? I right. was like, man, it was tough because he told me and then, you know, two minutes later, he's like, well, you got to go. You know, you're going to be late for school. And I'm like, fuck, man. Describe what your dad was like as a little league coach. Man, he was a maniac. We would practice literally like two, three hours a day, six, seven days a week. And you're how old? This is when I was like seven, eight. Jake Owen, that country singer, he was on my little league team. We would always win because we would just out practice and out play everybody else. And in what ways did he teach you to do whatever it takes to win? Winning was so important to him that I think that that just was one of the things that got ingrained in me. You know, he was the no points for second place type of guy. Tell about the making the bed lesson. My mom asked me to make my bed and I said, uh, you know, dad doesn't make his bed and so, she says, honey, you know, why don't you, you know, show them how to make the bed? And my dad's like, if you're making 10000 an hour, why the f*** would you make your bed when you could pay somebody $15 an hour? It's not like a typical lesson for an 8-year-old, but it made sense, you know? And it, and it carries through in life, too. Like, spend your time doing work that makes you the most amount of money. Don't do bullshit work that you could, you know, pay somebody else to do. You know, I picked that up, and I took that on board, and, you know, like the chef's upstairs. I mean, that saves a lot of time. Really? Yeah. I just had this conversation with my friend the other day. I'm like, you're worth $500 million. Get a chef like what are you doing to me it was so obvious but i think there's a lot of guys that just i don't know man there's not really like a manual on how to be rich um but maybe there should be so your kid growing up how many schools did you go to i don't remember how many total but i do know that i did seven um in like i think five years got kicked out of two no i got kicked out of three (laughs) so we went to provo then we went back to tampa and then back to uh, Sandy, Salt Lake-ish. And you get called out of a classroom one, one day. Yeah, I think it was like the first day of school. And they asked me if I had a gun in the car. And I was like, yeah, like a f-ing idiot. I thought like being honest would get you, you know, like, okay, this guy's like being honest. They don't give a f-. And it was that moment that effectively split up the family, right? Yep. How did you guys kind of get through that? I mean, I joined the military shortly thereafter and... Um, they moved back to Tampa. Was that hard for you at the time, knowing that kind of your actions are leading to this happening? I didn't care as much about that as I did that I was like finally, you know, in a school that I had friends at. I was the cool kid. 
it got, you know, it was like the first time in my life I remember like looking forward to going to school, you know. And was there a point where you thought you're going to end up being there for a while? I, I mean, in, in jail? Yeah, I mean, there was certainly that possibility. I mean, it was a, you know, serious charge, so I didn't, I didn't know how I was going to go. It was just like after I'd been in for three weeks, they basically just told me my, I guess, uh, my lawyer had made a deal and, and then, you know, I got time served, but then I couldn't. I couldn't come. I couldn't stay or come back to the state of Utah, which I didn't know was really like a possible thing. But yeah. Why at that time did you kind of hate your family then? I didn't really hate them around my senior year. I just didn't really spend much time with them. Having your father's respect was really important to you, right? Um. Yeah, I would say that you know, that was definitely something that I cared about. It wasn't, my senior year wasn't really something I was thinking too much about, but it was one of the reasons I went in the military. Why? Well, that's what he did. Like he went in the military and that was kind of like his salvation. Um, and so it was either community college or that. So <laughs> didn't seem like much of a choice. I believe it's Naval Station, Great Lakes. First time you said you truly realized you were kind of on your own. 16 hours a day for, what is it, seven months straight. Uh, how does that impact you? I would say I actually got more out of boot camp than SEAL training because that was like the first real shock. You know, that was when I kind of like, I mean, I went from living in, I don't know, 42,000 square foot house or whatever to, you know, living in a little barracks smaller than the basketball court with 60 dudes. And I think after that, it was a big realization for me because then like little things like, eating Outback Steakhouse, sleeping eight hours, just like small things like that made a big impact. You know, I was like that, you know, they gave me like that happiness or that pleasure spike or whatever from very small things. And so, I mean, it was definitely hard, um, but I didn't really have like a backup plan. So I just wasn't gonna quit. It wasn't really an option. And I think you turned 19 the day after Hell Week was secured. How does uh, your body feel at that point? I mean, I was wrecked. I was like, you know, crawling to the bathroom. It was, it was actually, it got progressively worse. So you go from running to then you sleep for whatever, four hours, three hours, and now you literally like are barely crawling. I think it was because all the inflammation, like when you finally sleep, that's when your body like starts to go into recovery mode and they really don't give you any downtime during Hell Week. So um, when we finally did, man, I was locked up, like I was hurting. And the Cliff Notes version of what Hell Week entails is what? It's like five and a half days, no sleep. You run a total, I think it was 144 miles, like boats, telephone poles, um, doing ocean swims, getting hypothermia, obstacle courses, endless calisthenics. I mean, it's just, it's no stopping. And describe the feeling of having your brown shirt taken from you and then having to tell your family who you were excited to come out to see you graduate actually don't come. Yeah, that's what signifies making it through Hell Week, so that's like a big deal, you know? Guys wear that with, with a lot of pride for sure. Um, and so yeah, when I got dropped, I was like back with all the guys that quit on day one. But, you know, he's definitely carrying a monkey on his back for the rest of his life, because there's a difference between getting kicked out and quitting, you know? It's like if I would've quit, I think that would've just eaten at me forever. What, what about having to call the family the second time? That was because I was one day before graduation. Half the class was doing live fire drills and the other half was on the other side of the bunker or the um, berm. And uh, yeah, the guys were just like laying down. I fell asleep, which was like pretty standard. There's guys that you know would sleep or whatever. My boker leader didn't wake me up. And so I was absent at the muster. And when I went in there for the review board, I was like just kind of like taught not to argue with them, don't give excuses. So when they Do ask me- Do you regret me, that? Yeah, for sure. Um, because you've replayed that moment in your- Well, yeah, I would have explained it. You know, it would have made the instructors look like idiots and then who knows, the result might've been the same. Um, but yeah, I would have explained it and I didn't. He, you know, he's just like, is this true? And technically it was, so I said, yeah. And then, you know, signed off on it. And this was like the first thing that you felt you or they could really be proud about. Yeah, yeah, that was probably my, I would say at the time, you know, my biggest accomplishment, so. Drugs, steroids. You've obviously been known to take them. You've written a 
about it, your kind of perspective on that in general? Well, I mean, I think there's different things. There's, there's HRT, which is basically hormone replacement therapy, and then there's doing like a heavy steroid cycle. And then there's, you know, juicing. And juicing is, you know, that's a different deal because now you're in like the super high, you know, range where the instances of side effects are going to be a lot higher and, um, you know, bigger risk, bigger reward. So it's, you know, it just depends on what your goals are. How about last time you used steroids? Well, it depends on how you define steroids. Like, I mean, I'm on, I'm on HRT, so I get like hormone replacement therapy from my doctor. When I, when I think of steroids, I think of like anabolic steroids. Right. Um, and so I haven't really taken a ton of that. Like I did when I was going through buds, I took a little bit. I'm not gonna make you recall every story from the, from the book, obviously, but uh, my favorite that I have to ask you about is crossing the Mexican border to get steroids and then uh, using condoms for an unconventional purpose. Yeah, man, that's what we had to do. It was unpleasant. All right, go ahead, tell me about it. So yeah, we're in the Mexican bathroom stall. We're trying to figure out how to get these bottles up. And um, I put them in the condom and then, you know, I got in the the stall over here. The guy's like, oh, I can't get this in my ass. And I'm like, you know, use more lube. And then my buddy's like, oh, this hurts. And you know, so these conversations, you're just like hearing snippets of it, right? So I, there must've been somebody else in the bathroom that could have heard this. It was like swear that we were like butt each other or something, you know? And uh, so we walked out of this damn bathroom was like everybody in the whole f-ing place is staring at us so not to mention we're like we're sweating we got bottles of steroids up our f-ing. we're uncomfortable the funny thing about this whole deal was it was to save 150 bucks because i could have just paid my buddy 150 bucks he would have smuggled my shit across so you get across the border yeah my buddy couldn't even hold his shit, so we, like we literally like the first exit he's like screaming like for us to pull over and he just like drops his pants and takes a shit in the goodyear parking lot and then he's like going through his to get the juice, you know, it was just very ridiculous. What's the deal with you and Quaaludes? I just like them, man. I've always like, even like ever since college, like I've been looking for something that's, you know, an alternative to alcohol because alcohol is just so, so hard in your body. Like, man, last night I just did 18 damn shots and I was like hung over. But if I was taking Quaaludes last night, I would have felt, you know, cool as a cucumber. Five years ago, six years ago, a buddy of mine like made some quaaludes, and uh, so we had made for, quaaludes. Yeah, like he had a made it in a lab or some. So we had them for a while, and I had mine in a vitamin C thing. And um, came home from a trip one time, and my maid had seen that it was expired, the vitamin C, and she chucked them all. It was like fifty thousand dollars worth of quaaludes. It was a full blown panic attack. I was so angry I wanted to kill her but it wasn't her fault you know I couldn't even fire her. I was like couldn't even yell at her I mean she you know what what does she know she just thought she was throwing away some expired vitamin C because outside of like the Wolf of Wall Street where you know Jordan Belfort did it in kind of earlier days it's not uh, well, really something that you hear about as much anymore Jordan offered me 5,000 a pill he was Man, his eyes lit up when he heard I had some. How concerned are you about lasting damage to your body from all the partying? You know, I I don't get up that much. That's the thing. And then, you know, like doing a Quaalude is way, way better for you than drinking or, you know, doing blow or molly or any of that other. So I think for like how much I've gone out and how many girls I've hooked up with and all that, I think I've like probably done a pretty fair job of keeping my together. Gambling. When was the addiction the worst? Probably early in college because I wasn't that good and I was also like getting up and then playing and I didn't really have like good bankroll management. And so I would lose money that was like really like catastrophic and it affected. Good, good bankroll management means what in your well, Like if you got a hundred grand and you're buying in for like a thousand bucks, you're buying in for an amount that like you're not supposed to be able to go broke. Just respecting the boundaries of like the limits that you can play. And in college, you went from, you know, having not a lot of money to more money than you could have ever imagined to then losing it. I had a lot of money coming in and it was like all tax free. And then I blew all of it. I like made some money and then I blew all of it, but it was a tough yo-yo. Like on the way down, it was shit. 
man. Like I had to like mortgage my car. I did just like, it's like borrowing money from friends. Like I asked my parents for money and they cut me off and it was. They, they cut you off? They never really loaned me any money, yeah. Um, what do you think that taught you that experience? Oh, that was invaluable. I mean, going broke is a very powerful experience for a gambler and it's almost like a must. Like if you don't go broke, then you really kind of like don't know how it is. But knowing that it's that causes you to have better bankroll management because you never want to go broke again. Explain your goal with how you wanted to be perceived. I want to be perceived as a bad player because I knew that, you know, the easiest money was playing against the rich bad players and that was always where I want to go. I, I mean, I, I saw that from, you know, playing live. Like when I went to the Bellagio and I started playing there, I would, you know, these bad players would come in and man, it was like, it was night and day. Like beating a bad player for a bunch of money is so much easier than trying to squeeze it out of a pro. Cause that pro is gonna like, he's gonna make the fold. He's gonna, you know, he's gonna, he's gonna pick you off here and there. He's gonna like figure your shit out. These bad players, I would just pound on them. I could just tell when they were either gonna snap back or when they just weren't gonna fold. And I knew those games were out there too. Like I, oh. I, the private games, because I I'd had friends that had, you know, been in them or people talked about them. I mean, I, I was like in there at the right time. I just, you know, I started breaking into the private games scene and I could just tell that they did not want pros in the game. So you had to just do everything in your power to convince them that you were not a pro. I had to have a story. My story was the trust fund. Like I had to, have, and I had a trust fund, I just didn't have access to it. This is like misconception. All these people think, oh, you know, his dad gave him a bunch of money. Well, I mean, I, I'm partially like responsible for that, you know, cause I didn't like, you know, I perpetuated it. I didn't argue it. Cause that was like what got me in the games. And how did social media help in starting to create better gambling opportunities for you? It helped perpetuate the, you know, the rich guy image. You know, also, you know, these guys want to be around hot girls. So when I, when I would have my poker games, I had a bunch of hot girls working them. And I would just only invite bad players. Tell about Molly's game. Um, what do you want to know? Uh, well, you said the movie didn't really do it justice. No, it did. That movie was really good. And the, and the lady that they got to play, Molly, was spot on. She did Jessica, an amazing Jesse. job. So the first time I showed up, you know, it was like, there's all these hot girls in cocktail dresses, all this food, the best cigars, expensive, you know, champagne and the cognac and just all the, any kind of bullshit you could imagine. And so you walked in there and it was like a movie poker game. His name's obviously been out there now. What did you think of Tobey Maguire, played by Michael Sarah in the movie? I didn't really like the guy. <laughs> Most Hollywood guys are, you know, they're like really nice to the face or whatever, but I don't know. I, if I don't like somebody, I just kind of tell them. And why, why do you think he rubbed people the wrong way? I mean, I think he was arrogant. I think he was kind of a dick and he, you know, and he, and he played to win, like he wanted to win. He was actually a pretty good player. How did people feel about him taking the game from Molly? I think everybody like, you know, had a lot of respect for him. You know, I mean, he's a A-list actor and he's, you know, he had a lot of pull. I didn't play his game after. Um, I only played Molly's game a couple times. She wouldn't let me back. Did you try and get, get in? Um, yeah, I mean, she basically said, you know, you're too good. It's funny because she wasn't even a poker player, but she was such a sharp hustler that she picked it out. Tell about Sam Majid and the most money you ever won off him, or, or the money you won off him collectively, if you had to guess. <laughs> there's two things. There's money won and then there's money paid. So he wasn't always the best about paying. So, I mean, there'd be times that I'd clip him for, you know, millions of dollars, but I didn't get it. I think the biggest amount that he paid me at once was like 750000 something like that. That was one check. And the context on who he is, is what? He was a really rich um, guy that uh, traded commodities. I think he was like big into gold, made a bunch of money and then moved to LA and ripped it, man. Just lived like there was no tomorrow. Unbeknownst to a lot of people, the clock was ticking in terms of the amount of time he had left because he was sick. Yeah, he had a terminal disease. So yeah, he lived, uh, he lived like there was no tomorrow. <laughs> he certainly did. And it was, that was pretty much like the only explanation because people would like watch this guy and the crazy that he was doing and the money that he was blowing. I mean, I think he lost like 80 million bucks in one year gambling. I mean, he's kind of a nut. And people have lost more than that, but like he lost it in a place that you shouldn't even be able to lose that kind of money. You know, like 
when Alec and Andy were playing, I mean, they're playing for 50 million bucks a piece. You those, know? those being billionaires, Alec Scores and Andy Beal. Yeah, so like when they're playing, I mean, it's like, you know, $50 million a piece, whatever. It's like, you know, easy to lose 80 million bucks like that. I think they played $100 million backgammon games, like a game, you know, so. If you're doing that, that's a whole different deal. But like Sam was playing in stakes where like you just should not lose 80 million in a year, let's put it that way. And, and to give further kind of color to some of the absurdity you were around with that, tell about the sharks. I mean, this guy's a maniac, dude. He, you know, put tiger sharks in a chlorinated pool. Like who does that, you know? And they end up dead. Yeah, uh, <laughs> there's no shock to a, to a Guy that has an aquarium. <laughs> Saltwater sharks don't do well in chlorinated pools. Uh, what was it like being around that? It was like being in a f- tornado, man. Like you never knew what he was gonna do. He's always on crazy amounts of f- cocaine. He's got chicks around all the time. He's got f- money everywhere. He's doing other drugs. Like it was just craziness. And the only thing you knew is that you're gonna leave his house richer. So you tolerated it because you know you were in it for. To, to make money and you were willing to take that risk because I mean, that, that was, was a, the net result. That was a part of it, but he was also like entertaining to hang out with. Like it was always, and it was almost addictive too. Like a part of it was like, what's this guy gonna do next? It's just always an adventure with the guy. We went out of the track, he like blew up both of his cars. I mean, just- What do you mean he blew up his- Blew the engine on this million dollar supercar he had. And then he's like driving in reverse on a like, 1965, uh, this Eleanor, I don't know how much that thing's worth. We blew the damn thing out of that. I mean, he's just a nut, man. It's a total nut. Uh, what do you think of Andy Beal? I never met him. He's the reason that uh, Full Tilt Poker is actually here, I think. Like the conglomerate of like Phil Ivey and all those guys, they kind of like put all their money together and then they played them heads up. Like, you know, to think these guys would, you know, have to win like three World Series is you know, to make 20 million bucks and they could just knock this dude off for it in, you know, one night. Who, I mean, who's worth billions. Yeah, he didn't give a f-. Like, there's so many of these, like, nerdy poker players that just, like, think that the tournaments and all this shit is where the money is. It's like, no, you dumb It's a private game, so that's where the money is. And Alex Scores, or AG, as he goes by in the book, is a, another kind of heavy hitter that you yeah, played beat, with he, quite a bit. From what I heard, I mean, he beat Andy for hundreds of millions. You know, did you say seven hundred? Yeah, I think it was the the number I got was seven hundred in one year. That's what that's what I was told. What would happen to your hair when you'd play AG? Um, I mean, there was a time when the stress. I mean, I like ran my hand through my hair and f-ing like thirty, forty follicles would like be in my hand. You know, so it's like it, that's a strong stress response to actually get your hair to f-ing fall out. What do you remember from what those games were like with him? I was the poor guy and he was the rich guy, and I had my foot on his throat the whole. F- time like I was the one blasting and firing and bluffing and you know like and he like didn't really play back at me that much it was surprising so but like doing like playing like aggressively and constantly bluffing and constantly firing at somebody like that is stressful you know like it's like every time you bet a million dollars you could lose a million dollars in the most you've ever won or or lost in a sitting would be what um, I beat him for 12.8 or 12.7 once, and then I beat him for 10.8, and um, those are probably my biggest wins. And then I lost, I think it was 2.6 to him, I think, and then I lost like 3.6 another time at the Aria. Explain why your dad once wouldn't talk to you for months. Um, well, when I was in the military, I had to sign off a third of my trust fund to get him out of jail because they, they had him in contempt of court for like nine or 10 months. And they're doing this thing called diesel therapy where they're like sending him from maximum security prison to maximum security to prison. And he felt like they had totally f***ed him over, which according to his accounts, they really had. And so, yeah, they basically came to me and they said, if you sign over a 30-year trust fund, um, we'll let him out. Like, they weren't supposed to be able to get a trust fund that you put to your sons because that's like not money that's his anymore. So he was not happy about it. He would have just stayed in jail. Like he would have preferred to just stay in jail for 10 years if, if it meant not giving them 50 bucks. Then the fund at one point you said it was worth like 96 million dollars the investments in it and then when you sell it 2019 2020 ish the, the investments are worth only a million and a half bucks or a little under what happened? 
I mean, all this stuff just kind of like ran the company's value down. And then once the company's value goes down, it's hard for them to like, you know, raise it, you know, so it's the whole thing. It had been, I don't know, 30, 39 years or whatever since he set up the trust fund. The two stocks that he had in there just didn't do that well. Does the perception annoy you that you're this guy who, you know, is rich because of money you've gotten from your family and, you know, the, the money won and gambling's kind of the, the cover for that? It's, it's tough, man. I, I've, like... I've had people talk shit about me for so many things that I wasn't like guilty of. So many fucking bullshit media stories about me. So many fucking misconceptions that I don't know. It's like it's almost like I don't. I'm just I'm just surprised because to me it's like it's so easily provable. Like I have like obviously I beat this guy. Alec for like 40-ish million dollars and I'll take a lie detector test I'll bet anybody I'll lay the mods like I can prove this without a shadow of a doubt that I beat this guy because a there's the wires B I gave Robo 5% of every game that I played so he can you know cooperate and he's worth 100 million dollars and then you know between Rick giving me pieces when he played Andy Beal I mean that was like 20-ish million dollars right there and then the 10 plus million I beat from Sam 70 million dollars like it's a lot of money to win and you know poker and these are just like you know this isn't even counting the game that i was running which i was making a ton of money out of that people i was staking like guys that i sent to macau guys that i would get into good games i, I mean i made and so much the the that means that putting whatever the they win you get a percentage of yeah you yep. put up all the money and then you get like yep. usually it's 70 percent of the win or 60 percent. ever taken any seven figure plus amount from family no I, I got really no assistance. I don't give a f where the money comes from. Like I would, I mean, I would have loved to just get handed the money on a silver platter. Like I, that, that would have felt better for me, I think, than having Why? to go through all the pain of winning it because it was rough, man. I remember when I got that text from from Rick Solomon. We win, you know, forty-two million, and my piece of it was, you know, ten and a half million. That felt to me so much better than when I had won the money because there wasn't any stress. Like I was just like. I just got ten and a half million dollars. Like, it felt way better than when I beat Alec for ten point eight. If you were handed the money, you would have deprived yourself of the joy of actually making it on your own. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was a lot of stress with the joy, and I, there wasn't like a, it wasn't as much joy as you would think. Looking back, my biggest regret was that I didn't like stop and smell the roses once in a while and just be like damn just like I wanted more and I like was thinking about the next match and I was just so in it and also I didn't I refused to let myself get happy because then if I lost it then I would like have that much further to fall so I think with the gambling I just I, I forced myself to just not be happy best financial advice you ever received the one that stands out in my mind was what my buddy Bill Perkins said to me um, when I was riding the Bitcoin train up. He said, if you're not a buyer, you should be a seller. And I was like, well, f I don't want to buy at 17. So maybe I should sell at 17. And then it went up to like 19 and I sold at 16.5 on the way down. And then it crashed all the way to 3,000. So it was like, I made a great sale, but I made it because of what he said. You remember how much you made off that? When I read it in the book, like 23 million? I don't remember the exact number, but it was a lot. How about worst financial decision ever made? I mean, you know, flipped a quarter for like, Three point something million and lost that, but I don't really like regret it too much because I it was like it was in the Alec, you know, action. And sometimes like it, you know, it's okay to like lose a little bit. You know, it's okay to like give action. It's okay to like fuck up sometimes. Like you, you know, feel like you need to in those situations. Sometimes, you know, if you just beat somebody over and over and over again, you know, they have an expression. It's like you can shear a sheep many times, but you can only skin it once. You know. You beat somebody up too much and they might never play again. There was times when I felt like maybe I should or maybe I should give more action or... I was able to make some like pretty big bluffs also with that in the back of my mind. Like, oh, f it, even if he calls, like I'm giving him some action. Like it'll, it'll extend, you know, it'll increase the longevity of this match. I knew that the moment I stopped playing him, I could celebrate the win, but I couldn't until. But that's why I posted that 10.8 wire transfer from him. 
is almost because I wanted it to like piss him off and him to stop playing me. It was such easy money. It was so big. Um, but at the same time, it was scary to play that big because he kept on wanting to go bigger and bigger and bigger. It was like towards the end, we were buying in for like five million or 10 million a pop, you know? You wrote, uh, eventually nothing I purchased brought me lasting joy, yet still I couldn't stop doing it. Explain that. You know, pleasure functions like a drug. You have to do more to get the same hit, you know, the same pleasure spike. You have to do more to get that. Like I had to f four, you know, three or four girls a day to feel normal. If I only f one girl, I was like, I felt like a loser. It was the strangest thing. How do you course correct? Uh, I like took a super hard right and I got a girlfriend and locked myself in the house and wrote a book, you know? I'd be going hard for like 11 years or so and then every, every like three years I would have to take like a year off and I'd have to just kind of like reset or it would kill me. Kind of like a little bit scary to me if I'm like going back because every time I go back to that shit, I go further than I did before. Um, so <laughs> I'm kind of headed down that road now. Let's see what happens. Uh, and why do you say that? I was monogamous for like a year and a half and then, um, and then I like broke up my girl and then I don't know, I like seven girls in two or three days or something. I don't know, you know, <laughs> like going back. I've like known for a long time that money isn't the answer to happiness, but I'm still chasing it. You came to the realization you were documenting more than living. Uh, what made you realize that? Like, so in 2014 and 15, I was just partying, getting up, banging a bunch of chicks, having fun. Like it was like real rock star. Shit. And I'm also really competitive. So I looked at Instagram, almost like a video game. Like I wanted to like to outdo what I did before. And you would see it like the video views. I mean, dude, I was getting like over 40 million views on my videos. Like nobody gets that. Like The Rock doesn't get that. Like Kardashians don't get that. Like nobody gets 40 million views a video. I had 30 million followers. How do you fix that? Um, well, I stopped documenting. <laughs> like I posted, I think like three or four times in the year. Um, I really just like kind of got off social media. I was, and it felt good. You know, social media was just, fuck, man, it's something that like can suck your life out, you know? Instead of enjoying the moment, you're like worried about capturing it, you know? And I, I see it. I see it in people all the time. They're just like so caught up in like, oh, you know, does this look cool or can we get a pic of this instead of just like being in the moment? You know, I, I just kicked all my, all my addictions this last two years. Therapy? The book was my therapy, man. It forces you to look at yourself. Like, there's no way you can write an autobiography and not stare in the mirror, you know? It's like, you see all the reasons why you did things, you see the mistakes you made, you relive the embarrassing In what ways are you a control freak? In what ways am I not? <laughs> and I think that's probably one of the reasons why I like mushrooms, because it forces you to just, like, not be in control and just go with the flow. And you said you set your life up in a way where you're in complete control almost all the time with no chance of actually getting hurt. Yeah, well, I did that with women. I think Jessa me up a little bit. One of your past girlfriends. I mean, I was really in love with her. She just had a drinking problem and then promised she wasn't gonna drink again. I just like really wanted to make it work. She had basically like every great trait you know, that's like really hard to find, the intelligence, the looks, all these things together, like needle in a haystack. And then everything else was <laughs> Like trust issues, daddy issues, like all the bull I was just like hoping that there was a way that I could make it work because she was so good in these areas that I cared about. You like want to marry her? No, I wanted her to not be a shithead. Um, and then maybe I would have married her, but I would have probably married her. Um, but yeah, I think she me up and then I basically created a situation where it was impossible to be hurt because I had so many women that they were like interchangeable like a pair of tennis shoes you know so it's like a situation where it's like almost impossible to fall in love and it's difficult to have like real connections and also you kind of like push away more of the like girls that you would want to have a relationship with and Why? because they're usually not gonna like indefinitely put up with you a bunch of other girls. You said sleeping with tons of women hurts your soul. How so? Um, it just draws on you, man. Like it's just, eventually you get in the spot where you're like dating all these women and it's like, they all want 
part of you or your time or whatever, and so you get like pulled. And you said, uh, I unfortunately didn't have that happiness from within. I didn't like being alone. Well, I think I was giving advice to guys in there. I was saying, you know, the healthy option is to be like happy on your own where you don't need anybody. That's really the answer. It's just a hard place to get to, and I was certainly not at that place. Um, Are you today? I would say I'm pretty close. Yeah, I don't like need anybody right now. You said being famous and becoming a sex addict is like owning a bar and becoming an alcoholic. Why say you're a sex addict? I mean, dude, it's, if you're having sex three to four times a day and you feel like that's kind of like the minimum of what you need, you got a problem. Four hours of my day minimum was spent showering, like texting, minimum. That's like, that's actually probably a conservative estimate. It was probably more time than that. Because um, like managing relationships, like flying girls out, vetting girls, making sure this girl's not a catfish. I mean, it's like a job, dude. Did you seek help? No. And I felt like I would have felt really weird sitting in a sex therapist's office. <laughs> I mean, maybe I should have, who knows? But I figured it out, you know, I sorted it on my own. Okay, how did you figure it out? With the book. I was monogamous for a year and a half. And, um, and then I didn't take the shitty road with my ex. I let her go and didn't drag her through the mud and I didn't cheat on her. I never lied to her. And I had a lot of opportunities to f hot girls and I passed. Explain how your video guy, Jay, would tell girls what you're looking for before they would ever meet you. He more gave them like a disclaimer, like Dan is not gonna try and hook up with you. Um, if you wanna f him, you have to be proactive. And so for me, like, I, I think this is one of the reasons why, like, I avoided any, like, bullshit, you know, like, any, like, sexual harassment, any of that stuff, is because I never hit on girls. Like, the guy that goes up to a girl and is like, oh, hey, you're beautiful, can I buy you a drink? Like, that guy's never going to get Like, that dumb does not work, okay? Um, but what does work is going out with some hot girls and, you know, other hot girls come up to you or, like, you know, maybe you send your girl to go grab another girl. I don't know. There's like many ways to do it. And so because of that, women were hitting on me and because they were hitting on me, then when they finally hooked up with me, they felt like they accomplished something. It's actually more fun too. And I feel like the girl's more into it when she's like aggressively trying to get the guy. How about longest you've gone without sex since you've been famous? I think 14 days, dude, that was a long time, man. How about, uh number of women you think you've been with? Mm, thousands. I don't know the exact number, but... Uh, most in a day? Nine. I've, I've had sex with nine women in a day, and then I've also had sex nine times in a day, but it wasn't with nine different women, if that makes sense. Like, I, like I had a tensum and I six girls out of the nine. Um, so there were six right there, and then I had sex with three other girls that day. Maybe you said four. a tensum. Yeah, me and I, nine girls. How, how does it even work? Not that well. I mean, to be honest, it's pretty much just like a lot of work. I went through like a whole box of condoms. I think a lot of people would think that would be super bad, but I don't think it really is. I think like a threesome with two girls that are into each other is pretty hot. Um, but otherwise, I just prefer to have sex with one girl, focus on her, and then have sex with a different girl. And that to me is better than, you know, some crazy orgy zoo. How often do you have unprotected sex? Um, I wore a condom, I think, almost every time for like the last, like, like before my monogamous relationship, like every time. Unless you're in a monogamous relationship, you use protection? Then I was just like, well, I mean, I knew she wasn't hooking up with any other guys, and I mean, I didn't plan on hooking up with other girls. So. But so now, because you're single, you aren't having unprotected? Oh, uh, God, I've been a Head the slab, I'm not gonna lie. Uh, but uh, I'm going back to condoms. <laughs> so, does that freak you out at all? A little bit, but I mean, I'm getting my blood work done, so you know, I feel good. Uh, any STDs ever? Uh, yeah, I, I had um, urea plasma and mycoplasma. Some qualify them as an STD, some don't. It's like a naturally occurring bacteria, but for me, it was giving me prostatitis and that's what um that's what got me so good about the condoms what's it like to date you depends on how seriously they're dating me i have casual relationships where i'll be dating a girl for three or four years and we'll hook up when she wants to hook up or when she's in town or you know when she gets sick of her boyfriend or whatever the 
it is. Um, and then I'll have other relationships where I'll date a girl, you know, more seriously for a few months. How about when you're in a serious relationship? Well, define serious relationship. Uh, the one you just got out of. I mean, she, I treated her like a queen. She traveled the world. She got, you know, to see all this shit. She's on yacht. She's living good. Um, I would say that that was pretty great for her. But uh, emotionally committed? I mean, are you? Yeah, I mean, I, I was, I don't know. Um, she was so young. I was like more like a, fucking, I don't know, mentor, I would say, than an equal with her. Marriage? But Can you see it for yourself? Just getting married to get married is like the dumbest thing I could ever imagine. I mean, unless you're not a rich guy. I think it's craziness to like, I don't know, just give a woman half your net worth because you guys decide to be in a relationship and it doesn't work out, then she just gets half of all your like why and then also just like why are you involving the government in your business if you're just dating then you can leave and they know you can leave so you'll be the best version of yourself and you'll want to make them more happy whereas i think when people get married one of the two people a lot of times gets lazy and they get complacent i mean look marriage doesn't work out very often it's not like a very you know like solid bet if you just look at the statistics of it so i mean maybe i'm cynical but to me unless you're going to have a kid i, I think there's no reason to get married okay so on the kid front that i could see i mean that's a possibility you know having a kid i think is not out of the realm of something that i might need to do need i feel like the things in my life that i regret are the things that i didn't try not the things that i failed at i failed at plenty of and i don't really regret much of it but the things that i didn't try I think those are some of the things that I, you know, look back and regret a little bit. You're getting older, obviously. Um, I, I mean, <laughs> thanks, Dick. <laughs> I'm 40, man. I mean, your brother had, <laughs> you had kids me already. Will next. I mean, you don't want to. I mean, look, you're <laughs> talking to somebody the other day who's, you know, 65 with a, a couple young kids. I mean, I'd imagine you don't want to be, you no, know, no, the, that's, the, not, the, no, the that's grandpa at the little league. Yeah, game, you don't so. want to be the. F 70-year-old guy throwing the kid a baseball. No, right. no that's, a, that's so, a very valid point. I think I got another five years to figure it out. I think the most important thing when you have a kid is that you're ready to have a kid and that you want to really like devote time to that kid and that you, that's going to be your focus. So for me, I wouldn't want to have a kid unless I was ready to make him like my world. So I want to talk to you about Ignite. What led you deciding to start it? Well, I mean, it's been a very long road of different turns. Initially, I wanted to do a dispensary and I wanted to have like hot girls work at the dispensary. I wanted it to be like a place, like a destination. And then we shifted from that because it was so difficult to get a deal with a dispensary. Man, we've just like gone all these different directions, but where I've landed is nicotine, alcohol, and energy. I'm so happy to be out of cannabis, to be honest with you. I mean, it's like the way they've, they've let these black market people do it and operate with impunity while people are trying to do this legitimately is just crazy. It's like impossible to compete with that. Hard decision for you to make? No, no, it was really easy. Um, it was a no brainer. I mean, the nicotine's been crushing it and like everybody is smoking vapes now. It's like you cannot go to the club. Every girl I know vapes, I mean, it's nuts. Do you do it? I did, man. I was like testing my and I got like pretty hooked on it and I was like smoking. My tendency was to just like keep smoking more and more weed. With the vape, I was able to like, you know, smoke without getting high as a giraffe. How's the company performed relative to your expectations? Um, extremely initially <laughs> and then beyond expectations lately. So yeah. and the difference is what? We've got a great product and we've got it to market. Before, like we had amazing marketing, but we didn't have enough product to market and we weren't in all the places where I was hitting. Like I have 80% of my following outside the US. We weren't tapping into that in any way, shape or form. And now we are. So, you know, I'm running Super Bowl ads for free. You know, like, I mean, my Ignite's got better engagement than Nike does. What did you make of the negative press you were getting? I mean, I've been getting this negative since, you know, 2014, right? It kind of like comes with the territory. Yeah, but this was different because you're yeah. running a publicly traded company. We fired Curtis, who was our uh, president, and he basically like went on a negative press campaign. And, and what, what he said was basically, you were using the company as your personal piggy bank and they yeah. flagged nearly a million dollars of 
you know, expenses. So this was stuff like yacht rental, London trip, Stars Wars set, bed frame, paintball field, vault. So a lot of the stuff that he named, um, I actually paid for. So the yacht, I mean, man, that was like branding. I mean, we had the f-ing goat skull front and center in a 300 foot yacht. And I think the yacht rental was like over a million bucks. And I, you know, paid for like, I want to say 600-ish of it. I mean, Ignite paid for 400. I mean, you know, 300-foot yacht with 30 super hot chicks. It's like, you know, life aspirational stuff. And that was kind of the brand that I was building was a lifestyle brand. So to me, it was like, man, that made a lot of noise. I think it's one of those things where I think also people don't really understand too much about business. And they look at it like, oh, my God, the company lost $50 million in a year. And it's like, well, Uber lost $5 billion and a quarter. You know what I mean? Like some companies lose money. Most companies lose money when they start. The headlines were like, Dan Bilzerian was faking everything. And it's like, I've been doing this for 10 years. Like I was famous for being rich, like eight years before Ignite started. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, I think like the narrative, you know, the clickbait that they were running was more irritating than anything just because it was all bullshit. You know, it's like, oh, Dan Bilzerian's fleeing the country. He's bankrupt. There was a decent amount of people that actually believed it, which was kind of I mean, I guess it makes sense. You know, people are, you know, programmed to they see it in the news and it's like, oh, this must be true. Did it make you depressed? I don't know um, how much of it was like writing the book and that and being, you know, locked in the house. You know, I mean, writing a book is not an easy thing, you know, and being like in the middle of COVID and having people talk and having the company not do well. It was a tough time, man. When you're at that point, what are you thinking with regards to the company? I mean, I was thinking obviously like, you know, we got to turn this around, cut the influencer stuff off. We definitely, you know, locked it down about a year ago, you know, with the with the Nick Vape sales just doing really well. And I'm like, okay, we got a good product. It's picking up traction. You know, this is something we can go global with. It was my audience, you know, I mean, people in, in, in the like, you know, 18 to, 45 year old range i mean that's like the heart of vaping so long-term goals with it would be what um i think we probably sell the company in the next couple years honestly i think these big tobacco companies realize the future is vape and they're going to need a brand and i think they're going to be willing to pay a premium for it do you have a return in your head that you want to get on it before you'd ever consider selling two billion would be nice because then i get over a billion that's what that was one of the milestones that I had like that'd be nice sell the company for a couple billion dollars and then go work at Walmart for three months I think that would be kind of cool and you'd like that why it would just you know you just live on whatever it was that you made and just recalibrate to that and then I think from that point you know then you would start to appreciate things more you know like right now I've gotten so numb to everything so you don't get those pleasure spikes anymore it's just normal so I think that would be Nice. Five years from now, uh, you know, we were doing an interview again. Where do you hope to be? I think at that point, I hopefully I've gotten to, you know, the, over the billion dollar mark and uh, I'll be focused on doing that makes me more happy. And I was going to uh, say, what is the guy who's living out every high school boy's dream want? I don't know. I think a decent girlfriend would be nice, um, like a more serious relationship with somebody that I view as an equal. Spending more time doing that I like to do, like surfing and helping people out, traveling. Right now, I want to like make Ignite worth as much money as humanly possible, sell it, and then after that, I guess I'll just figure it out, you know? Why was it important to you to write the book? So before we did our interview, I had finished the book, um, but I did it with a ghostwriter and it wasn't the right tone. I had always wanted to do it. I felt like I had an interesting story. I feel like I'm pretty misunderstood. And I wanted to just explain like how I did it, why I did it, and then, you know, give people some advice, you know, let them learn from all the things that I, you know, figured out, you know, through a lot of pain and trial and error. How's the reaction compared to what you were expecting? We've done, I think, like around 800K in sales. I mean, it's like, pretty good like people just don't like really read books that much I mean I kind of knew that I, I also have to do the audiobook I think that'll do really well I think a lot more people are willing to listen to a book than they are to read it I think it's the reaction of all the people that have read it I mean what do you think you know it seems like it's distinctly you obviously a lot went into kind of crafting it yeah I mean you could tell I wrote it you know it's like it's 
my tone, and when the other guy wrote it, you could just, you know, it just wasn't. It comes across in your voice, but you almost wouldn't think you wrote it because it, you know, it was really good and a first time. <laughs> Thanks. No, I mean, but seriously, like a first time author, you wouldn't expect yeah. to like be able to put something like that together absent a ghostwriter. No, I hear you. I worked really hard, man. And I feel really good about it because I know how difficult it was for me because I just really didn't want to do it. And I think in life when you do things that you don't want to do, but you know that it's the right thing to do, I think you get more value out of that than almost anything. Um, like all the things that I've done that I really didn't want to do, like I always was glad that I did them afterwards, you know? So... I'm trying to do that more. Want to wrap on uh, some random celebrity stories. First, Justin Bieber in Cannes. I was walking him down to our party on our boat, and um, he he had like all the paparazzi. See, the paparazzi didn't really give a about me. There was like all the fans and people and whatever, but he had like the paparazzi, and so I saw what a scene that was, and it was different because that was like much more obnoxious, like in your face, flashing lights, bombarding, you know, like. It was just different. It was the first time I'd, I'd really like seen that up close. And, um, and yeah, I, uh, I, I gave him a quaalude and got him laid. How did you get him laid? Oh, I just, I mean, there was a chick there that um, I had banged and I told her to bang him. I don't know, I think it was something like that. And I let him use my room. There's <laughs> nothing really that crazy. Uh, thoughts on Peter Berg? I don't really like the because he just, you know, I mean, he like begged me for this million bucks, you know, and like promised me the thing. I was like, I didn't like go to him and be like, hey, I want to be in your movie, this and that. They were like begging me for this money. Cause, and this is Lone Survivor, yeah. the Mark Wahlberg movie. So it, it only took eight million because they pre-sold the foreign rights. They shot it in New Mexico. So they got a tax rebate from that. So they really only needed to raise eight million dollars. So I gave them an eighth of the money they needed, you know, to shoot the whole film. And in exchange for that, you were promised what? Yeah, he was going to give me a role, you know, and movie and I was like you know at the time I wanted to get into acting and and, um, a, and a, even more than that a, a percentage of the back end right yep yep um and so yeah seemed like a good deal so I did it and then uh yeah I got over on the uh on the part and the back end how, how much did the movie make like 140 or 240 million some crazy and, and number. you were entitled to how much I got like three percent of the back end I want to say yeah you got but I was like, I just was kind of like sick of dealing with the and they gave me like one and a half million on my million and I was just like walked. Any experiences with Kim Kardashian? No, no. I mean, they've chartered my plane before, but, or the, or the candle did, or I don't know, some of them. Thank you very much. Yep. Good to see anybody. It's a long day. <laughs> That's it for this episode of the In-Depth Podcast. For the full house tour, where we check out Bilzerian's car collection, custom paintball field, and run into some of his, well, let's just call them friends, head over to youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. And don't forget to check out our 2017 sit down with Bilzerian. Tune in wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks again for listening.